Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 9 and into chapter 10 this morning. And as we continue our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning, we come to the end of the book of Ezra. And over the past two sermons on Ezra, we have seen the Lord raise Ezra up to return from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the body of believers. Now, the temple had been rebuilt the generation before, but the community of believers still needed reformation. The society was not functioning according to God's word, and therefore Ezra was sent back to teach the people the word of God and to reform the society based upon God's law. And in our passage for this morning, we come to see that Reforming the society of God's people was no small task. The year is 458 B.C. when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem in the month of August. And now the events of chapters 9 and 10 take place about four months later after he had returned to Jerusalem in the month of December of that same year, 458. The officials of the land come to Ezra with a report that many of the Israelites, including the priests, had intermarried with unbelieving Canaanites. The most foundational institution, the family, had been corrupted by these unbiblical marriages. This sin is threatening everything that Ezra was called to accomplish in Israel. You see... The word of God strictly forbade God's people from marrying the Canaanites. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. But why? Why are God's people not to intermarry with the people of the land? Well, Deuteronomy continues. For, why? For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You see, the prohibition against intermarriage is not a racial issue. It's not an ethnic issue. It is a faith issue. For there are numerous accounts of faithful Israelites marrying those of a different racial background. But they had nevertheless placed their faith in the one true God. Think of Boaz, the faithful Israelite, marrying Ruth, a Moabite, who had placed her faith in the one true God. The prohibition against marriage was about protecting the people of God from losing their faith. It was to keep them from turning to worship other gods. You see, it has always been the enemy's tactic to target the children of the community of faith. 
The first promise of the gospel that the Bible gives us in Genesis chapter 3 says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And this was a promise that one day a child would arise within the community of faith, within the family of God's people, and this child would defeat Satan. And so Satan's tactic has been to attack these children and the families from which they would arise. Throughout the word of God, we see Satan using infertility, child sacrifice, government mandated executions of children and intermarriage to, if at all possible, snuff out the seed that would one day arise and be his undoing. You see... When we speak of intermarriage with unbelievers, we're not speaking of a secondary issue. When God's people marry those outside of the faith, it is a direct disobedience to the word of God and a direct threat to the continuation of the covenant community. And in particular, the Old Testament time period, this was a threat to the rise of the Messiah. It was Satan's attempt to end the line from which the Lord Jesus Christ himself would arise. What then will Ezra do? How is he to respond to such a threat to the people of God? Well, what we will see is that if God's people would be reformed and renewed, then they must begin with repentance of sin. That is to say, if Ezra is to build a society based upon the Word of God, he must clear the foundation of sin and rebuild upon the rock of God's truth. And in like manner, if we in our generation would see the flourishing of God's kingdom, we too must be a people who repent of our sin that we might build upon the foundation, which is Christ. So hear now the word of the Lord. We'll read Ezra 9, verses 1 through 9. This is God's holy word. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt 
And for our iniquities, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us call out to Him in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we come now to your word and we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and that you would grant to us a spirit of repentance. Lord, a spirit of repentance that would lead to reviving and renewal amongst us. Lord, we pray that our thoughts and our convictions would not be turned towards others' sin but to ourselves. And that in the midst of our repentance, You would give us great hope in Your steadfast love offered to us in Christ Jesus, Your Son. That's in His name that we do pray. Amen. When I was young, one of my favorite toys that I would play with and look forward to receiving on Christmas morning or on a birthday was Legos. How many of you like Legos? Yes, it was a wonderful toy to receive. And I always had my little routine that I would go through. I guess maybe it showed that I was a little bit OCD or had a little bit of an engineer within me. I would take all the pieces and I would lay them out according to color and size and function. And I would get the book that told you how to do it and I would lay it out and I would follow the instructions meticulously to make sure that my Lego was put together correctly. Now, if it was a small project, I would be able to get through without any problems or issues. But inevitably, when it was a larger project, I would always mess something up. I would put the wrong piece in the wrong place, or if I would, I would switch around the orientation, and so it was supposed to go on the left, but I'd put it on the right, because in the book, it looked like the left was the right. Now, it was okay if I realized this mistake right away, I could correct it. But often what would happen in these larger projects is that I would put the wrong piece in the wrong place and move on and keep going and keep going until I would almost be done and it wouldn't fit together. And I would try to make it fit and I would try to force the pieces and then it would break apart and I'd get frustrated and I'd try to redo it until I realized that if I was going to go forward with the project, I was going to have to unbuild this thing and get back to where I had made a mistake. You see, you can try to make things fit. You can try to use different pieces than the ones prescribed. But ultimately, if you're going to move forward, you're going to have to deal with your foundational mistake. In our passage for this morning, we see that the elders of Israel come to Ezra with the news 
of a foundational mistake within the body of believers. The leading people of Israel have sinned by intermarrying with unbelievers. As we spoke of, this intermarriage was clearly a violation of the Word of God and a threat to the continuation of the community of faith. And so we read of Ezra's response in verses 3-4. through You can look there. It says, As soon as I heard this, these are the words of Ezra, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The first thing that must happen if we, God's people, would see renewal and revival within the body of Christ is that we must be a people who recognize our sin according to the Word of God. This recognition can be painful, it can be discouraging, it can be difficult to address. Nevertheless, it is the first step towards rectifying the community of faith. If sin is overlooked or ignored, it doesn't just go away. Rather, as time goes on, the damage of sin becomes more and more disruptive. You can't just build upon it, it must be addressed. Like a misplaced foundation stone will affect the whole structure, unrecognized sin will affect all All of life within the community of believers. Now it seems as we read through God's word and we look through history that matters of the heart have been particularly difficult and destructive to the people of God. You see, one might be willing to follow the Word of God on several other issues, but it seems that heart attraction, relationships, often act as a higher functional law than the Bible itself. And so God's people will compromise and engage in relationships that are clearly opposed to His Word. And is this not what we are witnessing in so many of our churches today that are willing to perform and even bless unbiblical marriages? Ministers who are willing to marry a Christian and a non-Christian? Those who are willing to bless a relationship with a Christian wedding ceremony even though the couple is living together outside of marriage and clearly engaging in unbiblical actions. Or even willing to perform same-sex weddings when they are clearly against God's Word. Whereas the Word of God is clear that such relationships are sinful and displeasing to God, they argue that human desire trumps God's law. They argue that if it feels so right, how could it be wrong? Who are we to say that they don't have a right to be together? In like fashion, it's not uncommon to hear professing Christians justify their own relational sin with such logic. It just feels so right. I knew that I had to leave my wife to pursue this relationship. Isn't it more important than that I'm happy? And while we might say that we obey the Word of God, functionally, for so many, our desires and emotions often trump what God has to say. As it did for these Israelites who married the people of the land. 
And while the specific issue at hand in this text is unbiblical relationships, the same truth holds for all of our sin and rebellion against God. If we would see great renewal and revival within the church in our generation, then we must be a people who are willing to recognize our sin in light of the Word of God and not just follow what it is that we feel, but follow what God reveals to us. We must be a people who, like Ezra, see and judge not according to our emotions or desires or the prevailing winds of popular culture, but rather according to the Word of God. Recognizing that God's word alone is the final authority as to what we are to believe and how we are to live our lives. And therefore we tremble at God's word as our authority. What sin are you willing to justify by appealing to a higher authority than God's word? What indulgence do you give your flesh that is clearly against God's word? Christian, you must have your eyes opened and recognize that there is no higher authority than the word of God. And just because it feels right doesn't mean that it is right. If you would move forward with God, we must begin by recognizing our sin and repenting. Now, following the recognition of sin, Ezra goes to the Lord and confesses the sin of the people in prayer. Look at verse 5. There we read, And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. If the first step in repentance is recognizing our sin according to the Word of God, the second step in true repentance is confessing our sin before God in prayer. A few things that we may note about this confession of sin that Ezra brings. First, we see that his confession is heartfelt. Ezra is not just kind of giving this general confession of sin. He's not going through the motions of repentance. Oh God, forgive me of my sin. It's bad. Rather, This repentance of sin is rooted in a deep conviction that the community of faith has offended the one true God. He says that he is ashamed, that he blushes, that he is unwilling to show his face. Not a mere rote confession, but a heartfelt confession that feels the weight of sin. Second, we see that this confession is directed to God. It's not uncommon for us to think of sin as merely a societal or relational problem, right? Sin is a problem because it hurts us or because it hurts other people. It messes up our lives. It's not good for us to hold on to guilt. Or we need to confess our sins so that we can make amends with others. 
But for true repentance to occur, we must see that the main party that is offended when we sin is not ourselves, it's not others, but it is God. In Isaiah 51, we have, rather not Isaiah 51, Psalm 51. Isaiah 51 is probably really good too, but that's not what we're talking about. Psalm 51. King David is offering a prayer in repentance to his relational sin. Right? You remember his relational sin? How he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. We're talking about some relational sin here. But he says, for I know my transgressions. Right? He recognizes his sin. He says, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Had not David sinned against Uriah? Greatly. Had he not sinned against Bathsheba? Yes, of course he had sinned greatly. But the point of David's prayer is that the main sinfulness of sin is not that it's committed against other human beings, but rather that it is committed against the Holy One of Israel. Christian, this is what is so evil and wicked about our sin. And if we don't judge it in light of this, then we will never have the heartfelt confession that we need. Our sin is not bad primarily because it hurts us or because it hurts others, as evil and wicked as that is. But rather, it's that we are sinning against the holy God. That we are rebelling against the sovereign creator of the universe who dwells in light unapproachable. And that because God is infinitely glorious, our transgression against Him and His law is infinitely wicked and deserves an infinite punishment. You see, if we would truly repent of our sin, we must see that we are sinning against God. And third, we see that confession does not make light of sin or make excuse for sin, but takes responsibility for sin. It has become all too common for us to hear people in the public square, make apologies that sound something along the lines of, I'm sorry if my actions have offended anyone. It was not my intent to bring harm, and I'm sorry if what I did was interpreted in this manner. How does Ezra confess? Well, he doesn't make light of Israel's sin. He doesn't make excuse. Rather, he confesses that their sin is great, And that it's generational. He confesses that God is just in sending His people into exile. And that He would be just to do it again. He ends his prayer saying in verse 15, Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. For renewal to come to the people of God. For reformation to come to the community of faith, we must be a people who make no excuse for our sin, 
but rather with heartfelt confession of our sin, go before our God and declare our absolute guilt and His absolute right to judge us for our guilt. How do the people of God experience renewal and flourishing? How will the people of God go forward with God when sin and rebellion are so rampant in the community? Simply put, we must repent. We must recognize the sinfulness of our actions according to God's Word. We must confess the sinfulness of our actions before a just and holy God. And the next thing that we see is that to experience renewal and flourishing, the people of God must, be, must repent by making a radical break from our sin. Now in chapter 10, Ezra and the, leader of God's, the leaders of God's people must make a decision about what to do concerning these marriages that are threatening the reestablishment of God's kingdom. And we read that they command the Israelite men to send away their unbelieving wives and children. It's a difficult decision to understand. When I look at the rest of Scripture, it baffles me that Ezra would break up these families. Where we read in Malachi chapter 2 that the Lord hates divorce. We read in 1 Corinthians 7 that if a believer is married to an unbeliever, that they are not to get divorced, but they are to remain married. We read in 1 Timothy 5 that a man who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. And so how are we to evaluate Ezra chapter 10 and the sending away of the unbelieving wives? Well, first we might say that what we have recorded in Ezra 10 is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not a written didactic law. It's just telling us what happened. It accurately records what happened, but does not necessarily teach us how we are to handle such situations currently. We know this is true because, as we have already noted, the Bible directly tells Christians not to divorce or send away unbelieving spouses. Rather, they are to remain married to them with the hopes that they will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the situation described in this text is not a 100% analogous situation to that which Paul is addressing. And therefore, when we come to texts like this, and this one in particular, we need to approach it with humility and the willingness to admit that what is recorded is difficult to understand. But their actions may have been necessary because of the precarious state of reestablishing the community of faith. Nevertheless, the principle of how we are to relate to sin is not confusing at all. For all of its difficulties of Ezra chapter 10, at the very least we can say that the way God's people are to repent from their sin is to make a radical break from practicing it. No matter how interwoven our sin might be in our lives, we are called to cut it off. The Lord Jesus puts this radical break with sin this way. In Matthew 5, He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You see, repentance means that we recognize our sin according to the Word of God. We confess our sin to God Himself with no excuse and that we make a radical break from our sin. We cut it out of our lives. We make no excuse for it because true repentance means that we break from our sin. We treat it like a cancerous tumor and we cut it out of our lives. And so, if you are in an unbiblical relationship, you are dating someone who is not a Christian, you are not called to missionary dating. That is an unbiblical relationship. And no matter how interwoven it is, a Christian and a non-Christian are not to be joined together in this way. And you need to pursue repentance and cut it out of your life. But we can go beyond just these unbiblical relationships. There are activities in our lives that we know are sinful, but we keep them around. And we watch things on TV and we pursue things on the Internet that we know that we should not be watching. And the Word of God is saying, make a radical break with these things. Don't just titrate yourself off of them. Cut them out of your life now. I know we're Presbyterians. And you might say, you know, I can have a little bit of wine here or beer here. And yay, I'm not going to say that I'm not going to make a law that's beyond what the Bible says. But I know that for some of you, if you have one, you're going to have 50. What do you do with that? You cut it out of your life. You don't play with sin. You make a radical break from sin. Some of you, you love to talk about people behind their backs. You get a little bit of gossip and you can't wait to go and share it with others. And you recognize that in yourself, but you keep eking along in this. The Word of God is calling you today not to make excuse for it, but to radically break from it. Get it out of your life. Cut that hand off. Tear that eye out. You might say, you know, everything in moderation. Not sin. Not sin. You see, if we would have revival in our generation, we must be a people who make a radical break from our sin. The reason that we have chosen to study the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is because they record the rebuilding of God's kingdom following a period of exile. The temple, the community, the worship, the society, the church, as it were, needs to be rebuilt. And over the past several years, we have experienced an analogous period of exile. Right, A time when many of us have been separated from the people of God. We've been physically separated, which has led to emotional and relational and spiritual separation. The church in general, and Rivermont in particular, needs a period of rebuilding. But to rebuild, we must first engage in true heartfelt repentance for the ways that we have made our priorities and our desires more significant than the Word of God. 
We must be willing to go down to the very foundation and have our sinful ways and attitudes changed. If we are going to see a rebuilding of the kingdom, then we're going to have to begin with repentance. For the past two and a half years, if it has done anything, it has exposed our sin. Sins of self-will, sins of gossip and judgment. We have seen uncharitableness that is not becoming of Christians. And maybe the most difficult thing is to see that for many people, the foundational stone of fellowship with other believers was political uniformity and not gospel unity in Christ. And that is the final thing that every Christian must do to truly repent of their sins. Which is look in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our community. For when we repent, we turn from our sin to Christ. As Ezra is confessing the sin of Israel, he roots his hope of his confession in the mercy of God. He says in verses 8-9, through But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love. You see, Ezra confesses the sin of Israel but he does it with the hope of God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. He leads the people of God in repentance. Why? Because there is a promise of forgiveness for those who turn from their sin. Christian, it is painful and difficult to repent. It's painful to turn from our ways, but the gospel promises That all who repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven. For the Lord Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our forgiveness. You see, repentance itself doesn't earn us forgiveness. It's not a work by which you earn God's favor with your many tears to make sure that you are repentant enough to receive God's forgiveness. No, repentance is a mere emptying of our hands that they might be filled with Christ. Repentance is removing the wrong foundation from your life to have Christ come in as the true foundation of your life. And this day, if you feel the weight of your sin, if you see that you have sinned against God, then turn from it. Repent of it. And embrace Jesus Christ alone as the foundation of your life and of the very foundation of this community of faith that we might experience renewing and refreshing in our generation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a heart of repentance and that you would, by your Spirit, enable us to truly see the guilt of our sin in light of your Word and make a radical break from it 
that we might radically dedicate ourselves to Christ. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.